April 1961, Yuri Gagarin, a Russian, became the first human to orbit the Earth. And he shared what impacted him the most. It was the view of the Earth spinning in the sea of darkness. And after he returned to Earth, he said this, People of the world, let us safeguard and enhance this beauty and not destroy it. In 1969, you know, three men visit the moon for the first time in history, and a similar feeling was shared. Michael Collins, one of those astronauts, said, the thing that really surprised me was that the Earth projected an air of fragility. And why, I don't know. I don't know to this day. I had a feeling it's tiny, it's shiny, it's beautiful, it's home and it's fragile. Since then, astronauts have all described a similar feeling. They all look at the issues in the world as so small, the borders in our country as trivial, the wars happening as pointless, and their view of humanity as one. It has been called the overview effect. And as we continue our series through Ephesians, a new humanity, we find something very similar. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, we are looking to the stars, the cosmic view, the cosmic perspective. And as we have come to understand Paul, he is asking us to have an overview of the scriptures, our lives in Christ, a part of the new humanity. And when we grasp the truths found here, it can change us from the inside so we are able to live into that. So... Let's do an overview of what we learned from the series so far. Paul started off in Ephesians with a thesis. He gave us the cosmic perspective of God choosing us in Christ, like he chose Abraham and how Abraham was a blessing, not to keep the blessing to ourselves, but to bless the world around us. Just like calling Abraham and calling Israel, now the church has been chosen and the church has been called to bless the world. Paul then prays for the church to have an apocalypse, which means a revealing, a revelation. I got Jake saying something. That was good. A revelation of the cosmic perspective of all that God is doing and has done throughout the story of the scriptures and throughout their own lives. Paul then explains in great detail of the human identity within the great cosmos, the cosmic powers the ruler of the air, and how Jesus set us free from those cosmic powers, and we are his masterpiece, given great power to do the works of the kingdom. That we are given this gift of God, but this gift, it is given freely and available to us, but it comes with a responsibility. It has a purpose for you to use the gift. And Paul continues with how this will change humanity and bring about a new humanity. He tells us this was Jesus' big plan. To bring unity among the nations through the grace of God and how we, knowing our new place in the cosmos, should be actively seeking peace with our brothers and sisters from other nations, tribes, and culture backgrounds. And as we follow Jesus together, not apart. And last week, we learned that now as a church doing the work of God, 
Paul had an apocalypse and a, rev a revelation, an unveiling that our very existence and the gathering together of the saints is a reminder to the dark powers that God is in control and, and everything that they mean for evil, God means for good. And the cosmic perspective ends here in chapter 3. He closes with a prayer and a praise song. This prayer is the hinge point in the book of Ephesians, of talking about everything in the cosmic to talking about the things on earth. Going from the revelation to the application. As Tyler Staten puts it, going from in the stars to in the dirt. Or, Tim Mackey, my fave, going from comprehending the apocalypse to responding to it. Meaning, Paul gives us the cosmic perspective first so that we know the full picture, and then he tells us how to apply it. Last week, Andrew, Andrew took us through the beginning of chapter 3, which was Paul catching up the readers on what was happening to him in that time. But now Paul is finishing up his thoughts that were derailed in verse 1. So before we read our text, we're going to read chapter 3, verse 1 again. For this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, Paul digresses and starts explaining the last few things he had missed out, but he comes back and finishes his thought in verse 14. So don't forget, when Paul says, for this reason, what is he calling back to? He's calling back to chapter 2, talking about the new humanity and the living stones and unity that we learned about in these past weeks. So in reference to that, Paul says... That's why, for this reason, for your sakes, I, pick up back in verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, the first thing to notice, it was more common for Jews to pray standing with their heads and hands lifted to the sky. This is the only place in Scripture where Paul describes his posture during prayer, and he says he is kneeling. If you look back in verse 1, he says, for this reason and for y'all's sakes, remember, whenever we read you in Ephesians, it's plural, it's y'all. Or as someone corrected me in the Georgia, they now say all y'all. I'm like, all right, so all y'all, when you see you, y'all, or if you're from Georgia, all y'all. So this is the only place where Paul is, talks about his posture, and if we look back in verse 1, he says, for y'all's sakes, I kneel before the Father multiple thoughts behind this, okay? First, Jews pray standing with their arms raised, and you can see that example in 1 Timothy 2.8, where he tells Timothy, I, I ask that you pray with your hands and your eyes lifted to the skies. This is the most ancient way of praying because they knew they were embodied beings and they practiced it. This is one reason why we remind you every week we are embodied beings. We open our hands each service in the posture of receiving because we don't just want to have an intellectual faith, but an embodied one as well. We actively play, pray, worship, and obey God. We don't just think it. Since Jews didn't primarily pray kneeling, Paul is doing something outside of his tradition. But it would have been common for Gentiles to pray kneeling. So Paul, knowing he is an embodied person, kneels. And as a sort of solidarity for the Gentiles, kneeling is a position complete in action on Paul's part. To position himself in the way that they would be, that they, that they would be positioned as a reminder of who he is praying for. 
So what does this teach us? We are embodied beings, and how we position ourselves for things matters. We say it every week. Open your hands in the posture of receiving. Bow in worship. Lift up your hands in praise. And if I were to pray for someone I cared about, praying in the position that they would be praying in would be putting my whole being into praying for them. And that's what Paul is doing here. Ben Witherington III, the visu- this visual of Paul praying for these Gentiles, whom he has not even met, creates pathos. Quintilian encourages that such physical actions as a way of confronting the audience with the posture and attitude they ought to assume. It is possible as well that this effect is enhanced here by the reference to kneeling, since that was not normal posture for prayer in Jewish Greco-Roman settings. It perhaps makes clear that the prayer is a part of an act of worship or special devotion. So we won't stay here long, but let's get some practical stuff here. Number one, when you pray, how do you pray? Is it standing, on your knees, lying down, driving to work? There's no wrong way to pray, but think about how you're praying and what your posture is. Be aware of it. Maybe you can focus on your prayer more if you're walking, sitting, kneeling. It's easy and very fun to start noticing what you're doing in your daily habits but especially with prayer. Number two, when you worship, does your body worship with you? It is easy to be embarrassed on how we worship, thinking that people are going to watch us, they're going to judge us, what are they going to say when they see me dance for the Lord? But most of us are thinking about our own awkwardness, and we are focused, or we're focused on God, not so much you. And when I first got through that and I started realizing people are not focusing on me, they're focusing on the Lord, I was a lot more free in my worship to God. Embodied worship helps remind myself of who I am worshiping. I kneel to remind myself of who is Lord. I bow to remind myself of who is King, and it is Jesus. I lift my hands to remind myself to let go and that He is great. Now, Paul praying this way to unify with the Gentiles is huge as well. Paul is embodying what every Jew should do for their Gentile brothers and sisters. And he is modeling what we should do for those who are not like us. Sit with that. How can we actively embody unity and love to those around us who are not like us? You have to remember, if when a Jew is reading this, they would think, why is Paul praying like a Gentile? And the Gentiles reading this would say, Paul's praying like me. That's huge. We're going to move on. Ephesians 3.15. From whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. Now, these concepts that Paul just mentions are argued among scholars as to what exactly Paul is saying because he doesn't expound much. But we have some idea based on the context of the book and word choice on what he is definitely saying. Number one, he's saying the Gentiles are part of the family of God. The Jews can't keep saying the Gentiles are unclean, unworthy, or not a part of the family of God. Paul has introduced this topic already in chapter two, and he's only doubling down. 
racism against other ethnic groups or lands isn't allowed for Paul. And in Christ, we are one family. We are the new humanity in heaven on earth. This means past loved ones are included, future loved ones are included, and those of other nations are included and more. Number two, in ancient Rome, the emperor of the time called himself the son of God or father of the fatherland to emphasize his role on earth, to say that he is greater than anyone else and that he comes from God. Paul uses two words in Greek, to show us his response to the emperor. The first word being patera, which is father in Greek, and patria, which is family in Greek. You can think of the, uh, the word paternal here, that which comes from the father. He is using a play on words here to emphasize these points and to the readers in the church. Everyone comes from God, number one. Number two, the emperor does not hold that title. Ben Witherington said this. In verse 14 through 15, there is a wordplay of paranomasia. That is not evident in English involving patera and patria. Again, the auroral character of the discourse is clear as Paul relies on the sound of the words to make an impression on the audience. That's so cool. There is here an emphasis on God as the father of all humans and especially those who worship and properly serve him. Since we hear of family groupings in heaven, this may be a reference not just to humans, but classes of groupings of angels. It may well be that this way of phrasing things is a deliberate attempt to counter imperial cult rhetoric. For in many inscriptions, the emperor would call himself the father of the fatherland. Here, a greater claim is made for God. He is father of all. Such family or ethnic groupings or fatherlands and even extraterrestrial locations here and in chapters 4 verse 6 are the only two places where we find the concept of God as father and not just creator of all. God is father not just because of the work of creation but also because of the work of redemption. Lynn Kohick says this, Paul's claim that God the Father is the God of all ethnic and language groups was not a dominant view at the time. For most people believed that gods ruled over territories, and those born in those territories were under the care of and were responsible to that deity. Do you see how controversial Paul was in his day and age? But can you see how beautiful it was? Now, Paul is addressing who he is praying for, um, but we haven't actually got into the prayer yet. But notice this. In between the cosmic perspective and the applica application of living it out is a prayer. Prayer is where we should find ourselves in knowing what we believe and how to live it out. Prayer truly helps when we meet our cosmic perspective through the action if we prayed with only heavenly things in mind, praying in the stars, we would be lost in our day-to-day -day of how to live. Tyler Staten speaking on this very verse said, prayers in the stars looks like prayers for the homeless without feeding them in the dirt. Or the opposite, if we pray with only our problems here that we see that we're going through the day-to-day -day in the dirt with no cosmic backdrop, we will find ourselves hopeless forgetting our future. It is by no mistake Paul gives us an example of how to pray here in Ephesians. And he writes, 
says, the Western church has perhaps allowed itself to be lulled into thinking that prayer and action are at the opposite ends of the scale of Christian activity. On the contrary, those who want their actions to be effective in God's kingdom should, be, should redouble their time and effort in prayer. Our prayers, church, should be with the cosmic in mind, our future and the promises of God, the glory and riches of His mercy, but also in the dirt applied, lived out, weeping with those who weep. So we have been learning and relearning the cosmic story from Paul and how to live it out will come next week. But what can we learn from Paul in the meantime? Praying can keep us grounded in being reminded of who we are. We are God's masterpiece, Ephesians 2.10. Being reminded of the cosmic, Ephesians 3, but also being able to see opportunities right here today. In our prayer lives, we need both, to pray with the cosmic in mind, but to live it out in the dirt. Prayer, reminding us of our more true reality, but actions and the reality we see. Paul's desire in, in this text is for us to know through our actions. So, are you guys ready to dive into the prayer? Let's go. Verse 16 through 19. It says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul requests when he prays for the church to have empowerment from the Spirit of God. Three things can fall into place when we have this encounter when the Spirit. First, that this encounter would strengthen us with power. This is an echo of his prayer in chapter 1, verse 19, running parallel to it. And his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength. A prayer saying his power is for us. Remember, you means y'all. For us who believe, and in this chapter, being that the church receives that power in their inner being. Now, what does Paul mean by inner being? Lynn Kohick says this, Paul uses the adverb inner with the noun human to speak of the person's mind or perspective on circumstances. Klein Snodgrass says, the expression is synonymous with heart, the controlling center from which life is comprehended and choices are made. So, Paul is praying for y'all, us, to have strength and power to change our perspectives and our minds that lead us into action. Now, scientist Eric Kandel was a scientist who first discovered that our brains can be rewired, reworked, teaching that mental activity is not only the product of the brain, but the shaper of it. Paul is saying that an empowerment with the Holy Spirit would give us the strength from his power to go into our inner being where we make our decisions and comprehend the world around us, to shape us. And as we know from neuroplasticity today, it takes changing our habits and changing the way we do things to form our minds. So what is Paul wanting us to change with our perspective and our decisions? 
We learned about it in chap- uh, the previous chapters. Everything opposing the church, from the cosmic powers to the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is the new humanity. Those whose theology shapes their lives for the better. Paul's desire is once the church has the cosmic vision of her calling, she would respond with it in action. We say this often, but we'll say it again. You are being formed by something, but what is it? What is being allowed into your inner inner being, influencing your decisions? Paul is praying that it would be the cosmic vision in our mind and actions shaping the way we live. A theology that leads to a new life and a new humanity. So not just something that we can say we believe in, but a responsibility of something we can live in. But interestingly enough, we don't immediately have this power. These are believers that Paul is writing to, but Paul prays that they may be strengthened, not that they are strengthened, because some have not had the empowerment from the Spirit. So for those of us who would say, we have been following Jesus and desire his power, this is for you. So the second thing that Paul mentions is empowerment from the Spirit of God to the dwelling in our hearts. This is the only place where Paul mentions Christ dwelling in our hearts. Notice this phrase is not used to talk about salvation here, but rather obedience from those who are already followers. So when Paul says he is praying for them to have Christ in their hearts, he doesn't mean I hope you become a believer or a follower, etc., Ben Wetherington says this, Paul is not referring here to the initial dwelling of Christ in the new convert's hearts. Rather, Paul is praying for the continuing presence of Christ within the Christians through faith. Paul is talking about the Spirit of God doing something within us, strengthening us with power through the dwelling of our hearts, continuing a work that has begun. Now, this is super good. Uh, The word dwell, I believe I have the definition up there. Dwell in Greek is cat, so hard to say, katoik asai. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that's how you say it. It means uh, to settle down or to make oneself at home. Paul is praying for the Spirit to strengthen y'all with y'all's actions, to shape y'all's perspectives by making his home within you to settle down and make a home within your heart. Ben Wetherington again says the verb kariekio signifies literally to make a home or to settle down and has in a view more permanent presence. That Paul is praying for this for those who are already Christians means that this is not automatically the case for converts who have already experienced the presence of Christ initially within their lives. Rather, this happens through faith. This shows as clearly as one could want that sanctification and a growing relationship with the presence of Christ in the believer's life is indeed contingent on the believer exercising faith in Christ. It is not a unilateral act or activity of God. Faith involves a relationship of trust between two parties. And so there can be no implication that the notion of Christ living in the center of believer's personality means the absorption of the individual personality or the dissolving of responsibility. If you have been following Jesus for any amount of time, you may know that the Spirit of God lives within you and speaks to you. Pause the, pause the thought. Continuing with hearts, ancient people didn't view hearts as we view 
it today is love and emotion, right? Lynn Kohick provides this example. While to the modern ear the heart implies the seat of emotions, the ancients held the heart to be the seat of physical and spiritual life, the place of the soul, mind, and conscience. Therefore, Paul stresses with the metaphor of heart more than the emotional affections. He includes a commitment of the will and intellect as believers and followers of Christ. So, This doesn't come automatically at the moment of salvation. Many of us think, well, I'm saved, so now I'm set. Or we think, I believe all the right things, so now I'm set. But in Ephesians 2, we went over this gift. It comes with a responsibility. This week, we see it as a relationship, but it comes with a constant response. The more you put into it, the more you'll get out of it. I think of the verse, you draw nigh to me, and I will draw nigh to you. I believe there are specific people in the room this morning. You may feel like you're hearing God's voice recently or maybe for the first time. And maybe it's the first time in a long time. But you have a desire to listen. So listen closely. Maybe there's someone else here in the room and you have been following Jesus a long time and maybe you have believed all the right things. Maybe you have lived a, lived a relatively good life with God. You have your own relationship with him. But you, but you have settled in the life with God that you like and settled in the beliefs that you like. But God isn't settled down within you. He lives within you, but he hasn't been enthroned. Take a moment, ask yourself the question right now. Does this apply to you? I'm not asking if you're a Christian. I'm not asking if you believe the right things. I'm asking if he has dwelled down. Next, Paul talks about love. Verse 17, and I pray that y'all, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, established in love and power together. Together, all the Lord's holy people, the new humanity, not some of the Lord's holy people, not just the ones you like and agree with, not just the whites or Hispanics, not just the Americans, not just the Republicans or Democrats, not your favorite denomination, all the Lord's holy people, that we would be rooted and established in love together so we can come to grasp Christ's love. Verse 18 through 19, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So first Paul is, says to be established and rooted in love, and now he talks about, his, about this love, to grasp how wide it is. Now this is the time for the readers in Ephesians where they're going to be calling back the things that they had just read. How wide? To the world, chapter 1, verse 4. How long? Rich and far enough to reach a sinner like me, chapter 2, verse 2. How high? To the heavenly realms, chapter 2, verse 6. And how deep? To the very inner being of your racially different blood. To the Jews and even to the Gentiles, chapter 2, verse 13. To know this love that surpasses knowing. What? Did I read that right? To know this love that surpasses being. He wants us to know something that is unknowable. Klein Snodgrass explains this. The first half of 319 is a good example of an oxymoron. 
a combination of words that appears contradictory. Paul prays that they may know the love that is beyond knowing. This is the language from someone who has been surprised and overwhelmed with Christ's love. Like the worship song says from Jonathan Hauser, you are an endless ocean, a bottomless sea. There is no end to the affection you have for me. Paul is poetically writing to express what he is trying to get into our brains. You can't ever know it, but I pray that you really know it. The word for know here is genesco, experiential knowledge, that experiencing a life with Christ and in a place of love with one another, we may be able to comprehend the love that is uncomprehendable. To know biblically is to experience so that we would know experientially his love, which is so massive, you couldn't know it comprehending. He uses similar language in Ephesians, peace beyond understanding. There is no end to his love. Our lives would be best lived exploring the vastness of Christ's love rather than what we do. Why would we want to live a life rooted in love? Why would, we be, why would we want to be established and rooted together as a new humanity and as a community so that we would be filled with the fullness of God? This makes three statements. Number one, Christ dwelling down and settling down in us is the fullness of God, and that is not automatic. Number two, running parallel to chapter 1, verse 23, who fills everything in every way that we would be breathing in and swimming in the new creation, grasping the love of Christ. And number three, Christ is the fullness of God. Ben Witherington says this, one can grasp it, love, only through experience. And even when one experiences it, one is left grasping for words to describe it ultimate goal of being rooted in love and grasping its meaning is to be filled in all the fullness of God. Grasping and experiencing God's love is the key to receiving the full presence of God into one's life. So maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, but that fullness of God hasn't been something you've experienced. Maybe you still haven't grasped the love of Christ for yourself, and it is difficult for you to give it on to others. Maybe you're the person in here desiring God's presence, and you have, a desperate, you have a desperation to experience the fullness of God. Michael J. Gorman says, Moreover, knowing God's fullness is possible only by knowing and sharing the self-sacrificial love that characterizes both the Son and the Father. Lynn Kohick, the picture Paul paints is believers receiving love poured out by God. Paul will speak of the Holy Spirit filling believers in chapter 5, verse 8, to promote a healthy, holy community. Maybe you have been, you've come into church today, and you have been sick of the drama from churches. You have a desire to see them united, healthy, holy and true community of God. For Christ to dwell down in our hearts, we first need to embody the self-sacrificial love of Christ. This is the church's community and the way of life that we live as the new humanity. Without a community united and holy, Christ cannot dwell down and settle down. My prayer has been this. Holy Spirit, settle down within me settle down. 
Let me spend my day learning of your love again and more. Fill me, Lord, with your fullness so that I can share the love that you have for the sinners, for my brothers and sisters, for my family, for my friends, for my church. I've had to, to be honest with you, church, studying this passage, I've had to check my own life. How do I view my brothers and sisters? Jesus asked us to love our enemies, and if I'm honest, it's really hard loving my family. Let's close out worship. The team, uh, let's, close, let's close this up. Worship team, you can make your way up. Jesus said, no greater love than this than for a man to lay down his life for his friends. Maybe some specific thoughts, maybe some specific thoughts are coming to mind. One person in particular, how could I possibly forgive them again? You don't understand what they've done to me. You don't understand the problems they've caused. How can I possibly love them? They are, you fill in the blank. Or maybe you're saying, I don't know if I have the capability of loving. I don't know if I've ever sat in the love of God, overwhelmed. I don't know if God could love me. I don't know if I've ever been loved. He doesn't, he doesn't want me. He doesn't love me. He doesn't answer my cries, my prayers. This is where the prayer of not just being in the dirt, my problems, but we apply the future hope, the cosmic perspective. Paul comes in with this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that at his work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul ends the cosmic portion of the letter just like how he started it, with praise. A doxology, which just means a liturgical praise song. And just like how he starts the cosmic perspective, he ends it with worship. Paul has had an apocalypse, a revelation that something has been unveiled, and he has shared it with us. Andrew said last week, we have a responsibility to respond in obedience to the knowledge that we are reading. It's a free gift to receive, but it comes with an obligation. How could we possibly love those who are fill in the blank? Paul, why are you praying this for us? Paul sees that when we gather together in love, and not forced love, but genuine love, the fullness of God comes down through our very inner beings, through our prayers, and through our worship. And when we doubt, how could I do this, or how can the church come to that place? The church has had so many flaws. How could we ever get the fullness of God? We're a mess. But we serve a God who can do more than we ask or think. We can do this together in the Spirit because Christ can do more than we ask or think, and He can give us the power to do it. Power over the world, power over the, our flesh, power over the dark powers and the heavenly realms. 
I want you to notice this, church. Paul isn't asking you to start a revolution. He's asking you to love your neighbor. What would the church look like in light of the cosmic perspective of Paul's prayer? What would a community look like with an apocalypse of the love of Christ? This is the only time in the book Paul says Christ and you. Isn't that interesting? Everywhere else in the book, he says us in Christ. But now he switches it when he's talking about love. That this amazing love of God, unknowable, may be known within us. Change the way we think, act, make decisions. I think of our giving liturgy that we said earlier. That we would be so generous to those that we want to hate, but that we instead show them love. Not a fake, forced love, but a real, authentic love. Church, are you desperate for more of God? Love your neighbor. Are you wanting to be filled with the Holy Spirit and the fullness of Christ? Root yourself in Christ's love for you and others. Experience Christ's love for yourself and learn how sweet it is to share. May our prayer be right now, Lord, settle down. Holy Spirit, settle down. Dwell down within our inner beings, in our heart. Notice this, church. Paul doesn't pray for their tension to go away or their fights to be resolved. He doesn't pray for Aunt Jane's hurt feelings to be healed or Uncle Hector's hurt feelings to be healed. (laughs) He doesn't pray for the problems to go away but prays for them to know Christ's love. And then he worships God. How do you make it through hard, difficult times with others? How do you love those who are so different from you? Repent if needed. Pray for the Holy Spirit to dwell, to, to dwell down. Live in love and worship the Lord. Lynn Kohick said this, the community must become what the church in its heavenly, heavenly reality already is, filled with the fullness of God. What a cosmic perspective placed prayer. Church, has this series brought an apocalypse for you? Has the curtain been opened? Are you starting to see what the church is about, the mission of the church? the new humanity. We end the apocalypse section of Ephesians with this prayer. Next week, we're going to learn how to practically apply it to our lives. But this is the overview effect, church. And you don't need to go to space. You just need to see the world from Christ's perspective. And he loves us. Amen? Let's stand. Let's respond. So God, we pray now that you would settle down within us. Give us the power to fight against the darkness of this world, against our own biases. Let us know your unknowable love. Help us to live in that love. Bring your fullness. We worship you now. And church, we don't, at Zion, we don't just believe in hearing the word, but responding to the word. So I'm going to invite this space. It's open. Whatever God is speaking to you about, just come up here. You can stand like this. 
meet with God and come forward. And then if you want someone to pray for you, open up your hands like this and we'll have a team come pray over you and bless you. Let's worship.